Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hello, I'm Gary Mansfield, and welcome to the Mizogart Podcast, where each week I'll be speaking to an artist. Now let's begin by banging these bongos. Hello and welcome to episode 3 of the Mizogart podcast. This week it should have been Mr Ray Richardson, but unfortunately, due to him getting himself run over, we wasn't able to record the episode. And since then, Ray's been very busy preparing for his solo show at Bose Arts in London. I'll give you a bit more information on that next week, but I'm pretty sure from memory it's the first week of September. I've just come back from being in Ireland, mainly over on the West Coast, down in West Cork, County Mayo and County Cavan in the centre. And knowing that County Mayo has got a very vibrant art scene, I contacted Miss Alice Maha, or Mar, if you're posh, so Alice told me. And I don't know how Alice gets any work done. The view out of a recently built studio is amazing. I'm not going to speak too much about our conversation, but a few elements of it I've not been able to stop thinking about since I've got home. I think I should stop there because I'll end up giving a few spoilers. But speaking of um, podcasts, we've got several more confirmed artists for future podcasts. That is Mr. Gerald Scarf, Meg Mosley, Mark Titchener and Barry Rygate. So that's another four names that we can add to the already superb list. So in place of Ray this week for episode three, and with perfect timing, might I add, is Bob Osborne. 
Speaking to Bob was an absolute pleasure. He's had such a roller coaster of a life. When he was a kid, his dad was a rag and bone man, but he ended up associating with high society. He pretty much learned to read on the back of the Orson cart and ended up becoming a published poet. He tells of his family history, which includes a bodyguard to Queen Victoria and an original rebel not taken. He talks how he started making artwork with driftwood from the beaches of Cornwall and years later how he ends up showing at the Saatchi Gallery with his partner and fellow artist Mad in Chiswick, Miss Carrie Reichart. This is the other episode where the audio quality wasn't up to standard because of the faulty memory card. But thanks to YouTube, a little bit of jiggery-pokery and a lot of effing and blinding, I've got it down to an audible quality. I could have asked Bob if he would re-record it for me, which I'm sure wouldn't have been a problem. But this is such a cracking story. I didn't want to do that because it would have lost the momentum that we had on the first time. So I'm not getting the way anymore. Here is Mr. Bob Osborne. So, I mean, it's recording now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you did give me an insight into reality TV, which I've subsequently become very interested in. And I'll let you know, but a lot of my work is involved with popular culture. Yeah. I kind of yeah. really like popular culture. And of course, so low life activity. But that's why yours and Carrie's sit so well together, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, the, the, the work that you make together, I didn't realise it was the work you've made together. I thought it was either hers or yours. Mm. And they they do sit. Yeah. They're very good bedfellows, aren't they? We have our own kind of work, um, uh, you know, work styles. But um, we do have a mutual interest in things like pornography and um, uh, you know, subversive yeah. um, actions. So that's a very interesting porn. My dad was a criminal, so you know, all that kind of low life thing really appeals to me. And it's my my language, Franco, because where I, where I grew up, you know, so. You know, you kind of go out in the streets and the pubs and the betting offices and you pick up all their language and yeah. it becomes your, your style of Part language. Of so, you know, I like working with um, tart cards. I like working with who watches them and filth. You know, I love swear words. I think I've got two X and there's like, a lot of that littered through it. At the same time, because I've had a really good education, I can like, legitimise, yeah. intellectualise yeah. that whole sub-working class or virtual, you know, imagery that, that, is, that is constantly surrounding you. So good balance and yeah we do a lot of mutual stuff refiring ceramic plates you know taking the piss out of the establishment you know doing the saucy stuff sexy stuff yeah vintage playing cards which i started doing then i've got carry on to it as well because she's got they're good aren't they? so i like I those said, let's do some vintage playing cards so yeah. over christmas about two years ago we've got this deck of 1950s playing cards we were putting all the political slogans all the feminist slogans on them you know it's completely potentially could offend everybody yeah because when I first come on to your stuff was when I saw the, you had some postcards years ago, probably, I don't know, six years ago. Postcards, that, like um, old, about 100-year-old postcards. Yeah. Or photographs. Were they yeah. photographs or postcards? Postcards. Um, yeah, and you was, um, like, did you put them in the, leave them in the garden or something yeah, for, for a year? Yeah, I've got one out there on, the, on that wall, before that mosaic. I had, because um, I grew up... My dad was a back and bone man, basically. We had a junction. Yeah. So, you know, I grew up with like market stores, boxes of stuff. Well, when I saw that, when yeah. I, sorry, when I saw that that, that was your background, yeah. it just, it, I could yeah. just see it all in your work. Because that's, I can imagine that's you as a kid going out totting and everything they're throwing on the back of the wagon, you're sitting there sort of making stuff out of. That's exactly And, that, right. and that's what I can see in your work. And then just, as soon as I saw that, as soon yeah. as you, I'd, I'd read that, yeah. that you, you know, you come from a totting background or a rag and bone background. Yeah. And I just went, yeah, that's, I can yeah. see it entirely. I mean, I did look at your first question, you know, um, and one of it was, what was it about your working practices? 
yeah, how would you explain what you do, your style, to someone that didn't know your work? Yeah, well that pretty much is encapsulated with what you just said, because um, the guy that wrote about me knew all about that. Basically, yeah, we, we used to go out with horses and carts and get stuff, you know, scrap metal line, sell it to the dealers, either go or go down the Portbella market where we had stores. Going back into the last century, we, we had a family of we were all rag and bone men. And my dad was one of 18, they were only gypsies, so they had kind of like ducking and diving, gambling and doing stuff, you know, money, prostitutes. But yeah, the main thing is, was as a kid, I was going out on the horse and cart, and I, I actually loved that because what we do, they get all this stuff, and my speciality was because they couldn't read or write. He'd have all the books. He'd get books from yeah. He said, oh, sling them away, boy. So they went a minute. Some of these are really nice. So when we had the market store, underneath, I used to sit there with all the books. He said, you can't make any money selling books. Yeah. No one can read around here. But in the book, <coughs> road, suddenly in the 60s, posh people. Yeah, yeah. Movie. So I'm selling these books. He said, how much are you selling for? I said, like six months, you know, shilling. I'm not flying. I remember the first book we ever had was The Collective Works of Lord Byron. And I must have been about 10. Didn't know who Byron was, but I thought, bloody hell, this is the life, and it's all Byron. It's like posh, it's romantic. I started reading this romantic poetry, and this is fucking blinding. I remember that book, it was the first thing I actually felt that was a piece of treasure. Yeah. So, yeah, um, then I was selling the books and um, postcards as well. Just collect all the old, post, old stamps, old football. So, was it your parents who put you into a good school, or did you do that after school? Did you do that yourself after school? Well, when I was 11, um, there was a scholarship run by Hammersmith for like a poor boy, yeah. what they termed a poor boy, poor boy from my school, which was near the White City Estate, to go to a local grammar school. So I was given that. And then I went to this... Um, did you did you have to qualify for it? You got, you have to have an interview. Yeah. And um, yeah, you had to, you were put forward and then you had to go for an interview. And my mum was like 17 when she had me. And so she would have only been about 28. Yeah. And my dad was in and out of trouble. Um, but he couldn't go because he was the archetypal rag and bone man, you know, spitting yeah. swearing and all that kind of stuff. You know, yellow arms from smoking. Yeah. So she said, it's best not go because my mum could put on the posh. So uh, she said, oh yeah, he said, what did your father do? He said, oh, he's an antique dealer. He's, he's working away at the moment. So they gave me this scholarship, but it was kind of RAF school. It was a pretty strict discipline. Yeah, yeah. Sure back in size places. I really struggled to get, to get in because when I was 11, both my grandparents don't go out in the gas oven so I went to oh. my dad because my mum had a nervous breakdown so it was all a bit fractured and then my dad said I'll take me to school so he take me to school on the horse and car and I said look you drop me at the end of the road and I'll walk the last bit and uh, I didn't want the horse and car yeah of course yeah. Yeah, yeah. parked outside the fucking <laughs> with the headmaster in there so I said drop me at the end of the bucket of shit hanging on the back <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah of course yeah, the <clears> saw <throat> me getting off yeah. so he had all his fucking jippo stuff and um I used to hate it, and uh, I was constantly in trouble. And the headmaster said, "Oh, you're one of these." He was next to Hammersmith Hospital and in Wormwood Scrubs. He said, "We've seen your type before. Yeah. You're born in the hospital. You come to the school, and you end up in the scrubs." Yeah, that little Bermuda Triangle. That Just the kind triangle. of motivation you want in life. Is <coughs> fuck you, and to become an artist. Yeah. You know? so, so yeah, that early influence was fundamental in. All the work I do now Excellent. with found objects yeah. uh, and mixing up media and just basically scavenging. You know, I'm kind of an opportunist because I don't have any fine art skills. But I just go and take bits and pieces from. Yeah, I mean, jumping to the from the first question, just jumping to the last because it's relevant at the moment. That the last question of, of the seven is: if you weren't an artist, what would you be? Now, not even necessarily an artist, but if you didn't get that grammar school opportunity 
Uh, and, there's, and it's in the, in the media at the moment, isn't it? Like, you know, saying, saying about how gra bad grammar schools are. But if you didn't get that opportunity then, do you think you would end up where you are now? I don't know. It's a difficult one because a lot of my cousins are, you know, got problems with drugs, have been in and out of prison, you know, on benefits. Uh, and quite frankly, I'm probably one of the very few in my whole family, like extended family group that has had a popular education. Because Bohemia don't really sit well with rag and bone, does it? You know, it's, it, Well, I, I don't know. I, I kind of think it, it does because I think there's a big link between artists and outsiders and, and criminals to some yeah. extent. They're both kind of a bit outside the system. So I've always gotten well with kind of shady characters. Yeah. You know, and I think artists, you know, down in Cornwall, I believe, and they've gotten well with the fishermen. So it's all those kind of people yeah. between them. Right? But I don't know whether I would have been... Um, I suppose it's all, everyone's just off the middle of the road, aren't they, you know? But what I do know is that um, I've inherited from my gypsy ancestors a uh, flair for making money. And I've made money in my life. Um, every business I've gone into, I've made money, I've had property, yeah. I've made millions. And uh, so I reckon that if I wasn't an artist, uh, I would have just been self-made million, multi-millionaire. Uh, I've had two divorces. Or in prison. <laughs> yeah. I think I'm too smart. Like my, dad, yes. my dad never went to prison, but my uncle did 21 years in Brixton. Yeah. So, uh, and he was pulled for the great train robbery, but my dad was kind of a little bit smarter than all his brothers, who a lot of them were retards. So he kind of kept out of trouble because he was a con man, so he would go and like, do quite sophisticated con, yeah. con stuff. So he never actually um, went inside, and I think I probably would have been too smart. So you. To, even without going to that grammar school, you still could have sort of ended up being in this lovely house in Chiswick, I think so, where yeah. we are now. Yeah, I think without a doubt. Um, you know, because I got expelled at 16 anyway, from the building time. Yeah. So, you know, the grammar school, what it gave me was a, a hatred of authority. Yeah. Um, which actually fueled me, you know, I'm really glad of it, you know. So when was your first influence or interest in art? Can you remember yeah, where that I, may have come I from? I remember... Vividly, um, when I left school, um, I actually went and worked in a building site and I did all my A-levels at night school and I studied literature, I was really interested in literature, my main influences were writing, I was yeah. reading ferociously, you know, Hemingway, Graham Greene, all those people when I was like 15, 16, Jack Kerouac obviously. Um, I got a... I got an offer to go to Oxford or Cambridge because I got all A's from my A's. I did them all at night school wow. and I swatted on Hamlet and I, I looked at all the questions for the last five years and worked out the chances of a question coming up and the question was Hamlet's soliloquy. And I thought I haven't got time to read the whole of the fucking book so I prepared an answer working on the basis it's a bit like scamming and gambling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Working yeah. on the odds. Probability. This, this answer came up in different guises every year. So I thought to short circuit the system I'm going to prepare my answer. Focus on it. And if it comes off yeah, you either fail big or, yeah, yeah. or win big. I, looked, I sat down on the paper, every question I did, I did politics, philosophy, and I did uh, literature. Every question came up that I, I fucking know the answers that I prepared. Got all A grades, and uh, they said, oh, we go to, go to Oxford or Cambridge. And, uh, so then I thought, oh, I'm going to take some off. So I went hitchhiking around Europe, as you do, in 1971, went to Morocco, you know, on the hippie trail, became a hippie. Uh, it was then that I kind of got interested in um, the whole cultural side of, of um, travelling, of, of looking at art, you know, reading yeah. books, foreign food. You know, it kind of really exploded um, my interests. Uh, and then I did go to university and I went and studied creative writing at 
UEA, which was a fantastic place to go. I had famous writers as tutors, Angus Wilson, Malcolm Bradbury. Wow. You know, I was hanging around with famous poets, um, Margaret Drabble, you know, parties and yeah, some yeah. lawns. You know, I was like hobnobbing with the aristocracy, which I loved. You know, I went there as this kind of token working class boy. What did your boy. parents, were your parents still about? Y yeah. And what did they think still of around? it? Yeah, I mean, they were really proud because, um, you know, not only could I read and write, which my dad supposedly couldn't do, but he could read, he could read a betting slip. And he yeah. Could, you know, but when the people who need national insurance came out, or when he served in the summons, he yeah. can't read or write. And then, in 1960, what can you say to someone who can't read or write? We, yeah. had, we had fans, we had horses and carts, they'd come around and say, what's your... Clamp it. You know, it's a get out of jail free card. Yeah. Really, on the punt. Oh, sorry, I, I interrupted there. What, what, what was your first interest in art in, in Morocco? Yeah, I was, I was, tra I was travelling, and my first interest in art, which also classifies art, was literature. I, I was in love with poetry and writing. I'd write little poems and postcards and things like that. And I actually published a book in 1977 when I graduated poetry. My main interest was becoming a writer and I wanted to write and a lot of my friends are novelists. So for the, like 10-20 years I was writing poetry, writing stories, writing spoofs, which I still do. That book was published, you know, it was in, it got really good um, reviews for someone so young. Uh, but basically I was just living on the Greek islands, living living a life of a wandering yeah. minstrel, yeah. you know, going from island to island, going to Spain. I spent about three or four years just living around on the beaches and Excellent. Know, putting birds and you know that's not a hard bars, life you know, is it? this is the fucking life you know that's that's what I envisaged and was, a, was, a poet was any of you writing being was you getting paid for any of it at all because um, you wouldn't have needed much to see you buy in that life did you I was just doing itinerant work fruit picking and stuff like this and I picked up jobs when I could um, but yeah I mean no, no nothing really earned any money the book well, sold the book of poetry but yeah, pittance really. So you know, I, I did graduate from university with a good degree in literature, and then I went off and did more travelling, mainly around the Greek islands. Yeah. And um, so, so all my early influences were literature, and my main artistic influence at the time was a poet called Robert Graves, who I knew. He was born in 1895, and you know he was in the First World War. Goodbye to all that. Uh, I researched his love poetry, went to visit him, stayed in this village in Mallorca, got to know his family. Yeah, no, I didn't... Uh, yeah, he's a First World War poet, which yeah. is incredible for someone like my age now in 2018, that he was actually uh, writing his best poetry in the 1920s, but he was 78, 80 when I hang out. Was he... No, no, I was going to say, was, did he have dementia? Then he was, he was well, it's difficult to say, he was mad, there's no, there's no doubt about it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he had this theory about the white goddess and he was a white old perv, he had loads Yeah, of I didn't know whether he was one I was thinking of or not of. He had, towards the end of his life, he was, when I knew him, he was definitely approaching senile. Yeah. Um, but he did, he was like a magus. A lot of people used to go to this village just to be in his company. Be around him, yeah. He was a very inspiring person. You know, he dabbled with everything. Uh, mysticism, you know, he regressed me back to the First World War. I wow. kind of got involved a bit with that kind of, you know... Um, spiritual stuff as well, and he was doing every truck known to man, you know. And um, he was a very people that influenced like the Huxleys were influenced by him yeah. in the 30s and 40s. So he was one of the kind of towering intellectual figures, and he was the first person that really 
I thought I want to be a proper artist, you know, want to be a writer at that stage. So when did the visual arts come in the visual arts to came your in life? Actually, quite late in my life. Um, after that, I had my girlfriend got pregnant. I had two kids. I needed to make money, so I became a wine taster. I fancied doing that job, and so I travelled around the world. And I had a capacity for tasting wine for some reason, so I used to fly out to Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, just judging wine, tasting wine for a living, which you know, sounds great, but it's quite hard work. I did that for about. 15 years, set my own wine business, importing wine, and I was scamming it because I was buying stuff that people hadn't realised had gone up in price. I was buying it before from Mason's and selling it to Christie's, so I've got a bit of a background for like buying and selling, mm. and I know when, like property, I bought property at the right time, before I did for shit loads of money. Yeah, yeah. So I did that, and then when my kids were like teenagers, and I'd been running this business, I had a public company, and I had people invest in me, I kind of got a bit claustrophobic at all. And I remember exactly when it happened. So in the mid-90s, I was down St. Ives visiting some friends. So I took my kids down there, my wife. I walked onto the beach and thought, this is the fucking life. Yeah. You know, the minute I saw that ocean and the light and the, all the fantastic art in yeah. Edwards, you know, I it's said, beautiful down I said, there, isn't I it? I need to relocate my life down here. Especially those studios on the beach there. Well, I worked in them, yeah. Um, so suddenly I, I said, look, I'm, I'm going to move into visual art now. I didn't have any training in visual no. art, but I decided I was going to become a visual artist rather than a, a verbal artist. Yeah. Because I thought, all my mates are novelists, they're all neurotic and they've got novels in drawers. I like the idea that you go down, get something, put it on a wall, it's a physical entity. So what I started doing was beach combing, which is my first love. Yeah. Basically just hanging around the beach, getting bits of driftwood and making sculptures. So I made a load and people said, what are you doing? I said, well, then I got to know all the famous artists down there before they died, Terry Frost. Sandra Blow, who I became her assistant. Yeah, nice. show. Sandra was a very close friend of mine, we showed together. I was in and out of their studios on the beach, learning all, all about their working practices, you know, especially the collagists that interest me greatly. Working with 70, 80 old, really cool people, teaching me everything they knew, I was helping them. And, uh, and then I started making my own driftwood constructions, my own seaside boxes, yeah. based on my like, seaside fairground material, you know, that kind of. Yeah, 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 yeah. Stuff and collaging old cigarette packets, all that kind of thing. Perfectly suited, perfect medium for my work and my background and my genetic predisposition. Yeah, because I yeah. always thought all my ancestors, all that experience is going into what I do. So you know, I kind of did. I see it as a massive privilege, and, and I've always been lucky in everything I've done. You know, I, I, yeah, it's it's as if you're validating. Your background, isn't it? Absolutely. And, 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 and your Absolutely. those gone before you. Absolutely. You need know, the Rebel I've taken logo. You know, it's like an incredible chance and a good fortune because um, one of my cousins was, was in prison and he, he studied genealogy. And he, he said to me, do you know that my ancestor was involved with the rebellion against the king in 1685? Oh, wow. I, said, I didn't know I said, that. No, but I said, but tell me more. He said, yeah, here's all the documents. A guy called Duke and Monmouth got an army together, basically around the West Country, with all the peasants and the ne'er-do-wells, yeah. mercenaries. And um, they planned to march on Bristol, and then march on London and overthrow the king. Excellent. James the first and James the second. This guy was the Duke of Monmouth, a wayward playboy. He was nuts, and he got all these people together. Like, yeah, let's do it. Pitchforks. Battle of Sedgemoor, 1685, the last battle on English soil. Winston Churchill's troops, the entity said yeah, that yeah. Winston Churchill slaughtered all the peasants of course. Isn't that the one that was supposed to be in the worst bloodshed yeah. in the country? Absolutely. 
slaughtered them. And it's no, hardly anyone knows about it, do they? Yeah, there's, there's a lot of books been on it, but the interesting thing was that um, my ancestor Alexander Osborne, times eight, escaped, uh, as did many of them. They'd done a runner when to get away. And all the ones that were caught were hung, drawn and quartered by Judge Jeffreys yeah. in what they call the Bloody Assizes, which yeah. is famous down there yeah. in the West countries. And he just used to, used to hung, draw and quarter them and then put their entrails on trees all up to London to discourage yeah. the peasants from revolting effectively. The ones that escaped were labelled rebel not taken. Nice. So in the assizes, I saw this rebel not taken, I thought that's my art brand. <laughs> you know, you couldn't make of it course. up. It's, of it's course. My, my inherited wealth yeah. to a certain extent. So I thought I used that. The other guys that were in that with my ancestor were Daniel Defoe, who then wrote Treasure Island, wow. and Captain, a guy called Peter Blood, Dr. Blood, who got sent to the Caribbean. Some of them were sent as slaves, the ones that were caught. So if my ancestor had been caught, he either would have been hung drawn and quartered, or if he had a little bit of money, he could buy himself into slavery, passage, yeah. sent to the Caribbean, where you'd be a slave to some white family, even though they were white. Um, this guy went to the Caribbean, became a pirate, and that was Captain Blood. Oh, the that's what I thought going to say, yeah. So, you know, I saw this, this is all genius. So it all links in with the kind of And that all, all links back to you? Yeah, yeah, that's my answer. If you haven't escaped... Me. So that whole pirate mythology, the like the rebel thing... And the know, anarchist, not yeah. I, yeah. Yeah, it's not that I bear any grudges now against the aristocracy no. because I've decided better to join them than yeah of course than they're a constant yeah. grudge so I, I lived the fucking life with I've been all loads of friends who are lords I've been so, so if you was on who do you think you are that would be quite a <laughs> quite a unveiling thing that's right because when you were saying about your your was it cousin who was doing genealogy yeah I thought you was going to say about uh, was it Giant George or George the Giant? That's, that's, that's the only bit I knew about, that, yeah? That's on my mother's side. So not only have I found this colourful history on my father's side, but then my mother's side, I started doing my own genealogy because I do genealogical research. I'm obsessed with the past and how it informs the... And plus, using all these postcards, you know, I came across the fact that my mother's uncle was a guy called George the Giant, who was a freak. You know, how tall was he? Do you know? Yeah, he was the second tallest man in the world. He was... They say it was eight foot four, but it was actually seven foot eleven. Oh wow! Um, uh, he then became Queen Victoria's private bodyguard. Yeah. And the rumours were that he was shagging Queen Victoria. <laughs> um, anyway, he was in the circus, and then Barnum and Bailey. This was their circus. They were there. They saw this guy in the crowd, who was bigger than their giant. And they had, so they said to him, "Do you want to be our giant?" And he said, "Well, what do you mean?" He said, "Well, we take you to New York, and we put you in our circus." And Excellent. Stage. So he agreed to it, and they took him to New York in 1900. He became a celebrity. He was on the New York stage as Jack and the Beanstalk for years. Prior to that, he went on the travelling freak shows across America. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's loads of photographs which you've got with him with all the dwarves. He'd have dwarves in his pocket, <laughs> dwarves on his shoulders. You know, it was like a bit after the elephant man. But there was I like, see he had one down the back of his trousers, yeah, didn't he? That's one, yeah. yeah. And he, he had what he was with this guy called Francesco Ventini, who had three legs and two penises. All, this, all the freak shows, which fascinates me. Wow. I love all that yeah. freak show stuff. So he did that for years, became a celebrity. He was just signed up by Hal Roach in 1920 to appear in silent movies with Harold Lloyd. I've got photographs of him with Chaplin, with Howard Lloyd, Sidney Fairbanks Sr. But they're all owned by Getty. And I wanted to make a book about George the Giant, which I still propose to do. Well, Getty said they want like £350 for every single usage. Well, I've got all these black and white photographs, but I can't publish them because they own them. So, 
this is a digression, but I thought the only way I could do it is by collaging them and making them into pictures. And yeah, yeah. Yeah, I found that out, and I thought I was really happy with that too because you know both sides have got this kind of eccentricity. Yeah. And then you 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 pull that into your yeah. visual work now. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I, I used to think, why am I so obsessed with like? I did a load of work with Chapman, with Buster Keaton when I was doing sensor work. I was really interested in the silent movies, and I think you know, black and white postcards, Victorian times, Victorian age, dark stuff, you know. I think, and then it kind of, when you find out that this is in your genes, it kind of it yeah, answers your yeah, own question. Yeah. Why have I got this obsession? And it and gives you a bit I'm, more yeah. confidence, it, that it's more that it's in your blood rather than Absolutely. something you've acquired. Yeah, I think so, you know. You think, well, why am I suddenly doing this? And kind of, to a certain extent, it, it informs what you do, and it gives you more confident yeah. in drawing on the past in order to, without having the technical skills to paint the painting which is good for me because I, I like just do lots of different things yeah you know I'm like a a magpie pirate collagist I work with other people's material I take ideas from yeah. other people make it into your own style I mean, when you started doing visual art can you remember a piece that um, that you'd put down as the one that was a turning point in your art that gave you the confidence yeah. that, that you knew that that was, that's it, this is where I'm going from yeah, here. Absolutely, yeah. One of the first pieces I did, I, I did a whole series of what I call seaside boxes when I was in Cornwall. And I made box constructions and in them I put ephemera, like I had old black and white postcards of my family in the sea with their trousers rolled up, and yeah. old weights packets, you know, all the kind of stuff that I had boxes of that I thought Put these together. So I made one called Margate, um, which I've still got actually because I never, a lot of people want to buy it, but I never sold it. And when I made that, it was my first one. I thought, this is really good. You know, it encapsulates all the yeah. things I want to do. I said, well, I had a show, and then I made 50 of these box constructions. I was putting Victorian erotica in them, I was doing lesbian ones, bits of torn deck chair, you know, peep, peep show stuff, all sold. And I said to my wife, I'm jacking, jacking in my business and my wine business and becoming an artist. And we had like two kids, and she said, well, you, What are you mad or something? You know, I said, yeah. No, I'm going to do it. And uh, she said, But yeah, we're making shitloads of money. And we got houses. I had a house in St. Ives on the beach. I had a flat in St. Ives. I had this place. You know, all a lot of big mortgages. You know, I said, oh, I don't care. I'll do it. I'll wow. It. Anyway, I made this Margate, and I'm, I'm thinking, That's great. I showed it to him, mate. He said, Yeah, it's great. I did a show. I had 50. I, I didn't sell that one. I put a red spot on it. It's my first one. All the others are sold. Excellent. Sell for shitloads, but 100 quid, but it legitimised the fact that yeah. I could make work and sell it. Yeah. And so that was the first piece that really, there really I thought, I can now become a visual collage, and I called it constructions. Yeah. Like constructions. And then, I mean, that, that sort of answers the, the next question on here is, is what's the piece that you created that you hold most dear? And would that be it? It, it would be that, but people have tried to buy but I've never sold and there was another piece after that I moved on to making driftwood constructions because yeah. I came on the influence of uh, people like Margaret Mellis you know about her but she was a constructivist who got Noel Garbo out from Hampstead along with Hepworth and Nicholson she moved out to Snipes and she brought all these great objects together and she was, had a great intellect and she was very eccentric and I befriended her and in her house she was like a frail old lady she had mountains of driftwood that she got on the beach and she'd knock them together with quite rough with nails and screws like that and make these abstract compositions that were just like so atmospheric and all the peeling paint. I thought, that's what I'm going to do next. So I said, Margaret, I'm, you know, I'm going to work in, take the ideas from you and work in your style. So then I started making these driftwood sculptures. And when I was in Cornwall, that's what I kind of 
became well known for. So I'd go down to the when there were shipwrecks in. Well, they don't like taking off the beach, though, do they? Or were they all right? Well, it's, technically, it's owned by the Prince of Wales, but I used to scavenge. I used to find beaches where, and in those days, boats were made of wood, but now yeah. they're made of plastic yeah. mostly. Because I'd find beaches where I clamber down, where stuff would come in, and then I'd come back with my booty on my shoulder. And I was living in Malso with a, my girlfriend at the time, who was married to Augustus John's oh, yeah. th- uh, son. Wow. So I lived in Augustus John's house in this place called the the fish store in Mousehold, so all his family were there, so I knew all the Johns. And then they had this great harbour, and Mousehold was notorious for being a rough sea. And they said, oh, it's terrible news about the, about the shipwreck. I said, what's that then? They said, oh, a couple of fishing boats have just been washed up in the storms. Fucking people dead. I said, where is it? He said, oh, fucking... That's material. Down, down the beach. <laughs> I've gone down there. Fucking genius. So I've got all this stuff, I'm putting it back to a garage. And uh, he said, what are you doing? I said, I'm getting this, I'm making sculpture. And the Coast Guard's come down. He says, what do you think you're doing? I said, well, what are you going to do with it? He said, you can't do that. It's owned by the harbour side. Yeah, yeah. So um, I said, oh, I'm an artist. I want to make some work out of it to commemorate the tragedy of um, the thing. And he said, no, you can't do that. I said, how much? He said, well, if you make a donation towards the whatever the life. Yeah, yeah, funny said, how it gets turned around. Right frankly, we're not going to do anything. So I'm like, that's him under quid. Beautiful work. Now, I made a whole series of Driftwood constructions. I think I made five out of that one boat that was washed up. Yeah. And then a dealer, at that time I had a dealer, put, I had an exhibition at War West England Academy, which, you know, for me was kind of quite posh yeah. venue. And I walked in there, there's a great big white cathedral like space, and all my driftwood sculptures on the wall. Wow. Five pieces that, and I thought, that's brilliant, that's a fishing boat that was wrecked. Yeah. I've gone down there, I've kind of but you've life into Transformed it, it into yeah, something like different. Like you're a messiah, but you know, you've created something out of nothing. Yeah. And that was part of my thing, that I'm creating something out of nothing. And salvage things. Yeah. So that was the thing that, that probably those driftwood sculptures I've never sold. And they've always been hanging in, in my house. Yeah. Or, or they're hanging here. Um, but they've been shown in West End Gallery. Yeah. But I was kind of hoping they didn't sell. You know, I've sold a couple of little ones and I've given them some, some to my kids for yeah. wedding presents. But I've still got about three or four and they mean a lot to me. Yeah. And those, to answer one of your other questions, that is probably a thing that I would you know, value as my most important work yeah. of my whole career. But as I was talking to Carrie earlier about another artist who, um, who I've, I've sort of worked with and, and got to know called Nicola White, who's a mudlark. On, along the Thames, oh, right, yeah. and yeah, she makes artwork out of yeah, her, out her finds as well. Yeah. I mean, I was I was talking to Carrie. She she also does stuff with Death Row, which is why I was talking to yeah, Carrie about yeah, it. Yeah. But um, yeah, Nicola White, she does she does similar with uh, with with her finds. Yeah, I think I know the name. So, that's great. What what is the medium you're working in at the moment? Is it? I I, I know you're doing stuff with yeah. well, all different sorts of medium you're yeah. working with at the minute. Well, we're working with, um, obviously, we've been collaborating with Carrie for about two years now. And then, you know, again, I've done a lot of ceramics. Well, I've never worked with ceramics before. Carrie's a highly skilled ceramicist and mosaicist. So, you know, I started making plates. We started making mutual plates. We were big, great, putting the tart cards on them. You know, I kind of took it down a notch, if you know what I mean, because she was doing like a lot of political activist stuff. I said, yeah, politics don't sell. I said, well, you need a bit of filth on it. <laughs> I mean, filth on a plate. Yeah, she had that inclination. I said, look, let's just put the fucking prostitutes on them and, and, yeah. and, and you know, filthy slogans, you know. London as a cunt was another famous... That was a good one. That was a good one. Uh, I had some p- 
trunk band here, bought stuff, and uh, he said, oh, we just got this top of this song. We can't use it because we're performing at the O2 and they won't let us see it. I said, what is it? He said, well, I'm going to cut it. I'm having that. <laughs> I said, I'm, I'm sorry, can I have it? He yeah. said, yeah, do what you like with it. So I, made, I put it on a postcard. I gave him one, and then we did the postcard. So we, I said, yeah, we use all our slogans. Look, she's got all, you know, buy less, fuck more, the feminist ones. I want yeah. to smash, smash the male patriarchy. Yeah. For me, it's all a bit of a joke, you know, the whole political stuff. I'm not really into politics, but I, I can see the interest in it. And I said, yeah, we also mix it up with all the Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Yeah. And people don't know what it means. You know, when I say, well, Londoners are cunts, they say, well, how can you say that? I say, well, I will say it because I'm a Londoner. <laughs> yeah. And Londoners have the best sense of humor <clears throat> in the world. So, yeah. You know, the other Londoners get it. Other people say, oh, it's a bit, you know, a bit offensive. Yeah, I was, I was never offended when I saw it. I just chuckled. I didn't know what was behind it. Yeah. But it was, I mean, for, when I first saw it, um, I mean, I first saw it online without no, even knowing who'd done it. And I didn't even think it was a northerner or, you know, uh, I just figured it was someone from... Yeah, I, <laughs> I did think it was probably a Londoner having a... And then, I, you know, I saw you underneath it. Yeah, well, people love it. I've stuck it up. And then we put it on plates and I was putting it on um, hunting... Hunting, but yeah, I've got friends yeah. who do hunting and shooting. Yeah. I've got friends who live in the country estates, and they invite me down there, you know, fucking drink pork and go on the hunts. Not that I do, because I'm, I'm not either pro or anti, but oh, I do like hanging around in beautiful houses. Yeah. I go down there, I take them a plate, and I, took, I said to them, he had all the farmhands down there for dinner. I took this plate, and all these farmhands are going, oh, that's lovely, fantastic, yeah, we agree with you. <laughs> I'm thinking, I didn't write to say, well, actually, it's ironic. But anyway, I presented to them. They said, oh, "I'm going to put that in, in our gun room, private place." You know, they actually thought I was saying that all of yeah, them yeah. because they go and sabotage and stuff. So, all that kind of area, I like the, the kind of the sarcasm of yeah. doing things in places where people aren't quite sure or too sure who you have in order to yeah. piss out. Which, like, uh, sorry, go back and back, Harry again. But when uh, Mad in England yeah. badge, I was wearing that for, for yeah. quite a while, and people would think that I was. Some sort of yeah. you know, patriotic, or, or not that I'm not, That's but true. they was reading yeah. into it yeah. what it didn't mean. It was the opposite. Know. You know, they was thinking I was some sort of That's possibly right. even some sort of thug for yeah, wearing yeah. it, and it was yeah. completely the opposite. The Excellent. Excellent. And I know I'm sitting in jacuzzi sometimes, so people are thinking, well, "So were you in the forces, isn't it?" But you know, you know, and I'm thinking, "No, oh, I just like that." And of course, I got the well not taken one as well. So nice, nice. You know, as so you're sitting there, and they're kind of thinking. What exactly does it mean? I said, what's well, mad in England? But the trouble is that the person that did it in Amsterdam didn't really leave, leave a big enough gap between... Yeah, you know, so... Yeah, mad in... And they, they, 
immediately people think it's made in England. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's what I was going to assume that you're old, or they go patriotic. That bloke's toe, they've left the E off. <laughs> it looks like mad in England. What an idiot. <laughs> I know. So that's why we decided to put our two brands together. So we, we now use both brands yeah. collaboratively, you know, because think about Carrie's ancestry, which is also very interesting, it comes from a long line of eccentrics. Yeah. You know, the Russian, she's a baroness technically. Yeah. Her dad's fucking nuts. So, you know, <laughs> all this kind of, that is mad in England. They are. Yeah. She is quite eccentric, although she says, I'm not eccentric. I said, of course you're fucking eccentric. Of course she is. I mean, she's fucking nuts. But she says, no, I'm not. She's, I'm quite normal. She's a so you can't tell her. So then, because of the Revolut Taken thing, there's elements of, I love eccentricity. I actually, I, I like the whole, I like, I like the fucking monarchy. I love the Queen. It's a big soap opera. Yeah. It's great material. I don't care. People are upper class, low class. You know, I don't have any of this class stuff, because where I come from, I wasn't of any class, really. Um, the upper classes have never done me any harm. In fact, they took me into their country houses and I spent a lot of my time hobbling. Yeah. Like real aristocrats, you know, and I think they're just the same as peasants, really, because they just want to have a good time. It's all the people in the middle that got it. Yeah, see, when I was, yeah, I agree there. Yeah. When, I was, when I was away, there was a few posh people when I was in jail, um, mainly for fraud and stuff like yeah, that. But, right. you know, I, first of all, I'd resent them. And, and the ones that are really posh, they... They've got more in common with, yeah. with us down the bottom than, than the ones in the middle. Because they don't give a fuck. No. Dress like traps, half of them. Yeah. You know, and, um, and there was, I, I know this is a bit, but there was, when I was away, there was one guy, I, f- I think he was a barrister, I, 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 I can't really remember his name, but he spoke very <laughs> posh. And, but he made friends with a bloody South London arm robber yeah. who spoke in gibberish, not gibberish, yeah. rhyming slang yeah. all the time. Yeah. And they, in the end, after a few months of them being together, yeah. the Cockney arm robber, he started talking with a little <laughs> bit of yeah. S's, T's and H's. Yeah, and the other one, um, I'm sure his name was Robert, but the, the other guy, he started using Cockney rhyming slang. He'd go, he go, call, look at the drum they're living in. <laughs> it was amazing. That's what I love about England. You know, I actually, I love the class system because it gives you so much material. Yeah. You know, the comedy, you know, we all know Steptoe, you know, funny principles. Yeah. I fucking love all that time ago. I love comedian. My heroes are comedians, more so than artists. Well, there's, there's oh, I mean, we're talking about podcasts. There's a a podcast called Comedians Comedian mm-hmm. that I listen to and he just interviews comedians yeah. but not talking about it, talking about like we're talking about yeah. the, the, what, what, how they made their jokes yeah. and if you just took away the word joke or punchline yeah. and inserted artwork yeah. it's exactly that's the same yeah. exactly the same how, the, yeah. the process behind it the yeah. thought behind it yeah, right. and the history of you know I think it's one of the hardest things is comedy these guys have tortured souls, aren't they? A lot of them, when they're not on stage, most of them get depressed. You're like, yeah, and then that's that's, that's like we've all created, isn't it? You know, yeah. But uh, yeah, it's fantastic. So I, I do like a lot of humour and irony in, yeah. in art. So uh, you know, I know that Carrie is it's more didactic and it's more about you know getting its message across. But that's why the collaborations we do, she can express more of that fun side. Yeah. You know, which also pisses off a lot of people because she's done stuff and like we've got naked women up in Brick Lane. And you get the feminists saying, oh, it's just, you know, insulting to, 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 to feminists, yeah. using tarts on playing cards, you think, oh, give me a rest. Yeah. Like, I can't stand the political correctness. Yeah. yeah I just wanna... But that's, that's the funny thing, because like I said, I, th- I think it was you I just said it to, the, the work you two make together, could it could be solely yours, yeah. or it could be solely hers. Yeah. 
Yeah. And even even the work you make um, on your own, that, that they're still they yeah. sit really well. Yeah. And yeah. Now, where, how long did you know Carrie? Oh, how long have you known Carrie? I've known Carrie for uh, about twelve years because I was I was married to an Italian woman and she was cutting stencils for me and I was doing a bit of street art around which is a good place and Carrie similarly you know doing a bit of street art at that time and I think she had the gallery in Acton Lane we used to like make mutual friends yeah. like Tom the stained glass window guy and so we'd be parties and then she we used to have occasional shows together I think I showed some stuff when she had a show with the new toy waste um, so you know we were kind of always and I did some stencils on her wall so I was you know was very interested in her as an artist and also thought she was great fun yeah, and she was married at that time, or living with Mr. Spunky, um, who was a you know, weird character. Uh, did all these um, mutated dolls' heads and things like that. You know. So it was quite an eccentric environment. We used to like go to shows and just meet each other up occasionally. And it was about three years ago. I split up with my Italian wife and um, moved back here, and she split with her on man. And uh, we just went out. It was New Year's Eve. I said, what are you doing? She said, nothing much. Go around some posh house, they're all doing the cocaine, take a load of mushrooms, and I said, yeah, sounds right to me. So we did that, and um, and next week later, we went to Amsterdam, decided to get, we had this drunken conversation, let's merge our brands and take over the art world. <laughs> of course. Yeah, so we did that, and then we went to Amsterdam, and then we started documenting stuff on the local forum, and uh, getting interviews, because she's very savvy with social media. Yeah. And I have a bit of a follow-up, and she's like, you know, TV. So then they interviewed us and they called us the posh and begs of the art world. <laughs> and I've got a mate to write a spoof art about us saying the posh and begs of the art world. So we'd make these little magazines about our wonderful art life. Yeah. And we'd like big it up. We're going to this, going to this. I said, if you make these things up, ultimately they come true. Yeah. So we tell everyone that we're fucking smashing it on the art scene. You know, and then uh, and people buy in there. We're in Saatchi, you know, she's giving talks to the fucking left, right and centre. You know, we've had prints in... Um, Glastonbury, you know, and um, then we made all these little books. I said, let's make all these little books. So I set up a publishing company that were not taken. The first one we did the tart playing cards. I said, just do a little book. I always wanted to do books because being from the ground background, I kind of, I value, you know, yeah. the, the written word. Yeah. And uh, to combine that with the visual stuff, and then I would write little stuff about it. We'd get Adrian Burnham, the academic critic, to write a little piece about us. I made this book, Royal Flushes. And then we put it on social media, and of course it all got taken down. And um, funny enough, it was Ben Oakley, you probably know. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, I said, oh, we got this book, you know, I don't know if it was we made all the cards and put them on the faces, so we got 56 playing cards, all really saucy. He said, I'll stick back in my gallery. So we stuck them in, in the Ben Oakley gallery, and then we had a book launch there. And uh, yeah, it went quite well. Yeah. And then he said, there's a policeman in the gallery, so get That was funny, wasn't it? I'll get a photograph. And then I said, oh, well, Gonna be busted, you know. We're gonna be complaining yeah. that someone, some old Doris is complaining now. The police are in there. He's got a photograph of the policeman looking at it. That's great. He just, it? he said, they just fucking. That's right up his street. It's right up Ben Street as well, isn't it? Matter. I said, you know, it's, it's the story. Yeah. So then we did queer as fuck, which was all gay guys. Yeah. Well, beefcake, but we made it go slowness, which was probably the most offensive thing we've ever. Done. <laughs> I said, let's go down to Brighton for the art boot fair. There's no pubs down there, and we put it on the thing. And she said, I don't know, it's a bit. You know, I don't know if you've seen it, I'll give you one. <laughs> and, um, Whatever. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, these guys go, oh, you know, I think even the gays find it offensive, you know, and of course, it's really taking the piss 
Yeah. It's called Queer as Fuck, so you know, it's all... But that, that was a difficult one to sell, but it was fun. And uh, so, yeah, we just started making... There's a project you're doing now, Cash King. Cash is King, yeah. Um, oh, sorry, Cash is King. Cash is King, so, yeah. That's, that's, that's collaborating year. with... How many artists you got on that? About 80, actually. Um, what is I... I'd done playing cards, and I thought, oh, I saw someone painted on a banknote. And so... I said, let's do some banknotes. So we started using the decals, you know, the tart ones. Yeah. But then I used the, we had a decal of, um, this time next year we'd be millionaires. With the yeah, car, yeah. I love that image. So let's make out that we're going to become millionaires by defacing money. Yeah. You know, because it fits into that whole kind of, it's actually, you know, a bit dodgy. So we started doing them. Then I said, oh, let's get some, some other people, invite all the artists we know to do a banknote and we'll do a little book. Because we do these little hundred copy yeah. books. And let's call it Cash is King because they're trying to get rid of cash. And that's all their microchips. And it's, it's all part of the control thing because cash. I love money, I don't know about anyone else, but you know, you can pay your cleaner, you can buy a bit of. Oh, I prefer it. You know, they want to get rid of it because they control it. <coughs> so rather than being the root of all evil, I think money is actually the road to freedom. Yeah. Because if you haven't got it, you want to get it. You can get it if you're smart enough. If you have got it, you're, you're quitting. Yeah. So, you know, money for me is kind of quite a sacred thing. Um, and that, that comes back to your background as well, yeah. doesn't it? Because everything was, well, Everything's I know everything funny. was cash back in them days anyway. Yeah. But I know, like, look, looking at um, totters and mm. gypsies and travel, you know, I, I know a lot of uh, travellers myself. It's all about what you've got in your pocket and under your mattress. Yeah, yeah. In your bank account yeah, yeah. was irrelevant. Yeah, exactly. And I remember the first ever memory I had was, I was my uncle's cleaning out what's the cash when they've been selling all the stuff and going down the pub and like seeing it all disappear or going in the betting office something's yeah. all gone easy come easy go but I remember I love these old 10 shilling notes and I remember once in it had I saw one and it had Chepstow 230 and it had the name of a horse excellent um, and I'm thinking someone's obviously been given a tip and they've written it on a note and that always stuck in my mind yeah you know. that, the, that the information on there was more valuable than the, than the note exactly. itself exactly so we put this call out to a few people like Dot Moss who I know have done the history of it. I said, let's open it to everybody and say, do what you like on it. Yeah. It doesn't have to be political, it doesn't have to be anarchist, you know, preferably humour. So suddenly people started pouring in, notes were coming in from all over the world from some serious crackpots in America. And, uh, you know, I saw, saw the yeah, yeah, excellent. stuff turns up, the postman yeah. brings it, and I think, what the fuck is this? So then um, I had some Russian artist who's really good, does political work, and I said, I really like your work, do you want to send a note? He said, yeah, it's difficult to get stuck out of Ukraine for artists. And he lives in about £100 a month, design pound a month. You know. He said, anyway, if you go to the British Museum, I've got, they've got one of my notes in there. I said, really? I said, well, what's his name? And they gave me the name of the head of numismatics, which is a word I've never heard of before. But now no, I'm the same here. Roman coins. So I said, oh, Kirill Bandarenko is in the book we're doing. Can I come and see you to see your collection? He said, yeah. This guy's written a book about how 300 years ago people were, like, hung for defacing back. It used to be a That's it. I got my barrister onto it. I said, look, I'm doing this book. Some people are scared, especially Americans, to send notes because they're paranoid about the fucking... Defacing their own... I think they are. And, of course, in Iran, you get beheaded. If yeah. You but here, under the 1928 Banknotes Act, it's illegal. No one's ever been prosecuted. The maximum fine in 1970 was £1. Now it's £200. So I thought, on safe ground here. So I went to the British Museum. He's written a book about it. And I said, they're doing this. He said, yeah, bring me a book in. You know, I said, can I donate a book to the British Museum? He said, yeah, of course. So then I told everyone, British Museum stock in our book. You know, I've given them one, that's all. That's the same thing. And then I've said, how about if we um, 
had a, the note, a bank note, he actually said, yeah, just choose one. So I'm going to take one up to him, get a photograph of him. He's Excellent. Like, some kid from Oxford, you know, with like ginger beard. Yeah. Uh, so then suddenly you're in the British Museum and everyone's thinking, oh wow, you're in the British Museum. So the story snowballs, more and more good people are sending in stuff, you know, like Ico and uh, oh, Ben Eyne and Stick, but yeah. Stick said he would do one, but I know they're busy. But a lot of other really good artists have sent them. Uh, you know my friend Ray Richardson, he'd he done, done a blinder, yeah. Yeah, they were lovely, and uh, he was really good to work with. I said, look, this is a deal, Ray. Uh, That's said, right up his street as yeah, well, wasn't it? I sent the, I said, I'll send you an old 60s, because I know he's like dogs and yeah, stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's like a have a thing about him, it's like a Mike Lee film, you know, yeah. his work, you know, it's beautiful. And, and he paints things that, you know, fine artists don't normally go into those areas, yeah. like the run-down Thames, you know, old cars and yeah. And uh, he sat in the back and I said, oh, it's brilliant. He said, oh, I just really enjoyed doing them. He said, it's given me kind of a, a different, because normally you do in the class, it's just different. And I said, these are fantastic, I love them. So I said, I'll come and see you when you do Rope Studio in June. And uh, so I've got them, yeah. And... Um, I'll, I'll put them in the book. That's a good thing with them banknotes because a lot of artists, they, you know, they're obviously just they're on their own track. They they do their same thing day yeah. in day out. They've got their mm. their form what they work with, and then when something like this comes along, the, yeah. Yeah, a lot of them are, are yeah. more than pleased to, to do yeah. it because it's it's something they're not used to doing. It's something they can experiment with yeah, or have right. a bit of fun with. It's small, you know, you can be yeah. playful with it. It's not like you've got to work on a big canvas. You can do one quickly, and people have knitted them. Yeah. You know, Painted them, torn them, burnt them. I, when when I was mentioning it to Carrie, she mentioned I, I don't I don't know if it was on whether it's been recorded, but she mentioned the foreword that you've got for the book from Adrian Burnham. Yeah, he, he's a great academic writer and, it, and he's, he loves her work. He's always written the foreword, so I just painted that. Just no, it was or, or, no, it was a quote that the, you got when you asked. Oh, the Bank of England. The Bank of England, sorry, I didn't. Yeah. I forgot where it had come from. Stick came out for a cup of tea, and I said, come on, do us a note. Said, oh, I will, you know, but, you know, you think about successful artists, like, they like to be in control of everything they do. Yeah. It's going to go out on social media, so does he want something going in a random book or something like that? Yeah. This morning, so we have to understand it. He said, but I'll tell you what you should do, you should, you should get a quote from the, from the uh, Bank of England. So I said, that's a good idea. So next morning, I He's said, probably email. savvy, isn't he? He said, you need to, he goes and talks about strategising your art, you know, yeah. and monetising it. And I, I admire that kind of, uh, that, the skill that yeah, you've got yeah. to, to play the market. I said, the character's guy's fucking smart, you know, I you know it's just a pair of sticks, but, you know, it's, it's much more than that, because he's clever. So, you know, he could make view something on it. with, you know, I think it's trivial and pure art, to be honest, but I admire the whole concept. He's made a brand. Yeah. And um, so I put this email from Bank of England and said, we are a group of, um, uh, banknote um, bank artists who are working on banknotes defacing them, you know, but, but we're not taking them, signed it, you know. Um, you know, I'm a proud, uh, I'm so proud of our currency that, you know, I love working with the old vintage um, pound notes and can you give us a quote to put in our book? And uh, I've got this back saying, well, we have to tell you that under the 1928 Banknotes Act, what you're doing is technically illegal, um, therefore under no circumstances can we give you a quote for your book? I think exactly That's a perfect... Quote for your book. I know, signed Charles, head of communications, Bank of England, Scott Spade, he just got all the bollocks off. Wonderful. Yeah, it couldn't have been any better than that, I could know. it? I said, you know, you couldn't make it up. No. And he said, what am up here? You know, he's fallen right in the yeah. trap. So then I thought, I'm pushing Well, he hadn't fallen in a trap because it wasn't a trap. He's no. made his own trap and jumped no. in it. So I thought, I'll push it for another one. So I said, <laughs> I said oh, I didn't realise it, um, it was legal. Um, are we likely to be put in the tower or something like that because I'm getting a bit worried now maybe we shouldn't go ahead with the book 
you know, can you can you advise me? He said we can't advise you of the legalities, but he gave me a whole list of acts. He said, but you need to look into these areas, and it's all the, the different acts. You know, yeah, twenty references to things, and you know, take responsibility for your own. Act. But it's an artwork amongst that on its own, isn't there? I know, so I'm definitely going to use the quote. Use it on the back. And, uh, so little things like that. When we're talking about collaborating with other artists, um, if there was you and five other artists, past or present, what would your perfect group show be? Or what five artists would you like to work with or hang alongside? Or I have collaborated with, apart from Carrie, I've collaborated in St Ives with a series of great artists called Sandra Blow. We, we did a piece together, we had a, a two-man show, she was on her way. I did help her with a lot of her work for the last ten years. Yes, her, her work reminds me of like Matisse's yeah. um, I've got later work. Big pieces there, I'll show you. But yeah, in the book, there's a chapter about me and her, and I learnt a lot from her. Um, so she would definitely be one, because I really had a relationship with her towards the end of her life, about three years, but I would love to have had more time working with her. Um, I also collaborated with a guy called Dennis Bowen, who was an early Tashis painter from the 50s. Towards the end of his life, he drink and drive caught up with him but he was one of those people he taught Pete Townsend he used to put Jimmy Hendrix on take LSD and then throw paint on balconies <laughs> for that a real, real interesting work talking about passphrases. so I clap with him but in terms of well known artists who I would like to show with who probably people that I revere um, my first choice would be Joseph Cornell who not a lot of people know um, he was a surrealist in, in America a really weird guy obsessions about film styles that he'd make little box constructions and that he was one of the major influences on me working with box constructions. You know, he put strange things in them. He never travelled outside into a complete fantasy world. He was a bit he was a virgin, he was a bit kinky. Um, but there's a dark element in his work that yeah. like pluses are kind of inbuilt humour. So it would be Joseph Cornell, Margaret Mellis who I've already mentioned who does the most amazing work with Driftwood and um, a major influence on me. Um, other artists for well, Matisse was a very early influence, not necessarily due to painting styles, but just the, the sensual use of colour and you know, subject matter of exotic locations. And yeah. South of France, you know, that white atmosphere. He's, he's one of my favourites. Yeah, I just love the, the luxurious quality of it. All, yeah. You know, this sensual, you can almost touch it, you know, and it's like warm and a uh, yeah, very sexy painter, um, Matisse. Did you go to his show at... Yeah. Uh, oh, wasn't it beautiful? Yeah. Wasn't it beautiful? Yeah, 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 it's lovely. And I went to the Gliani show as well, because Mr. Gliani is someone I admire as a painter too. Um, well, I think his sculptures are better. But, um, so those three, I mean, another another guy that I never met, but I know his family, his work, I would love to show alongside. And I probably have, because I have shown with, with all those great artists in fairs and exhibitions. From St. Ives is Peter Lanyon, who um, started working in big America. He died in a gliding accident. He was a very reckless guy. Um, was he the pilot? Yeah, he was a pilot. But he used to go out and paint from. He used to paint from the, the plane. He'd do some. Oh, he, he did all this. That you've got to check his work out. It's unbelievable. He would paint. And what was his name? Peter Lanyon, L-A-N-Y-O-N. He was probably one of the best St. Ives artists. Did one Son. Yeah, there was a documentary on him a while ago. Probably. He was a very romantic character. Was he... Who was he living with? Was he, uh... Who was he married to? 
he was married to a woman called Sheila Lanyon, but I don't think that's maybe that's not the documentary that they made about him. He had loads of birds on the side. I remember I remember seeing someone St Ives who died in a yeah, but that was Peter Lanyon. He died. Uh, he, he died in a plane crash, a, a glider accident. He basically was painting. Yeah, I remember. He used to, he used to paint upside down yeah. the plane. He was nuts. And um, but a lot of his paintings are from the air, looking down on the sea. Yeah. All this blues and beautiful work. That's it. Um, so he would be definitely someone. And of course, I may have seen it on a program about St Ives. Yeah. And then you know, of course, everyone says Picasso, but you know, Picasso is very dear to my heart because. Um, the lady that worked both forward for the book about me was um, Sylvette David. Oh, that's right, she was a model, wasn't it? She was Picasso's model in 1958, and um, she was the girl with a blue ponytail, who was his favourite model, the most beautiful woman I've ever seen in my life, even at her age. And in 1958, Picasso was obsessed with her, he was painting her over and over again. And um, Bridget Bardot was with Roger Vadim just down the coast in Valerie. Yeah. She said to Roger Vadim, you want to take me to Picasso because uh, I want him to paint me. And so Roger Vadim took Bridget Bardot and said, oh, you can paint Bridget Bardot. At that time she had black hair and she was like a little kid. And um, she's the most beautiful woman in France. And Silbert has told me this. Picasso said, she's the second most beautiful woman. <laughs> nice. The most beautiful woman in France is my current model, yeah. Silbert David. And there's a photograph in the book about me, which I can show you, which she let me use of her in yeah. 20. Uh, Bridget Bardo then said, you need to make me look like her. So wow. she started wearing the peasant dresses, getting oh. the suntan, dyed her hair blonde, put it in a ponytail, copied Silvette to bead. And every time I see Silvette, when I went to see her, I said, oh, Silvette, can you write um, a, this is a long shot, but can you write a forward about me? Because I've knew her socially. You know, and she's also a really good painter when I want her and write. And her daughter's married to Lawrence Delalio, so she's local. Oh, yeah. So, you know, I've seen her at shows and I've seen Lawrence and her daughter. So can you write stuff about me? So she said, yeah, I looked at your work, Peter. Showed me some of your work. She said, I love it. I said, just write what you want, because her main language is French. So she wrote this beautiful little thing, and, she, and she's mentioned me in the same saying that I remind her of Picasso, the way I get stuff off the beach. She said, Picasso used to go down to the beach and make stuff out of things he found. And in the evening, he might make something out of a gulwar packet. And she said, Bob Osborne has that lovely quality. I'm reading something. This is fucking wow. unbelievable. Wow. Not only am I linked to Picasso, but, you know, like we're linked because we both kind of yeah, really like yeah. the same woman. Um, I'll be in there, she's very old and nothing happened. But, um, and I thought, well, this is just really fortunate. So, you know, of course, Picasso was just, you know, as far as I'm concerned, the Tarrant figure of 20th century art. You know. he, he, he turned it turned it around, didn't he? He did whatever he liked. And um, also, because it's highly astute businessman. And if you'd asked Picasso that question, what would you have been if you weren't an artist? He could have been anything. Yeah. He could have been a merchant banker and he would have been the richest merchant banker yeah. in the world. Yeah, people queuing up outside his studio. You know, they'd have to leave deposits to, to come back the next day because he didn't want to see them. You know, genius. Um, and that's where Warhol and Hearst and all those people Yeah, there, of course. Like, he was the, like, the god of business yeah. as well as being. What would you do if you weren't an artist? I think I'd just be a, a money-making machine. I think that's what I would do. I just want to, um, I'd be an entrepreneur and I'd have houses on beaches. And, uh, you know, just basically, I, I would, I'm older now, but, you know, when I was younger, I just wanted to be a playboy. That's not bad. Eat good food, have beautiful girlfriends, go on yachts. I don't think, I don't well, I think you're the only young man to want to. Well, exactly, you know, but to be honest, that, that, that's how I lived for a long time. You know, I, I was fortunate in that I had access to a lot of, um, 
country houses, I knew a lot of rich people, I knew a lot of famous artists. Yeah. And I've had houses on the beach myself, and I've been incredibly lucky in that sense. Yeah. You know, so uh, I wouldn't swap my life with anyone, maybe apart from Picasso. Yeah. And where can where can people find your work online? Yeah, um, I've got two websites. I've got a website called um, www.robertosborne.org.uk, which is all my work from the 90s up to 2012, including all of the um, tonight's work. There's a book written about me called Constructions by Peter Davis, which documents my work, also my family history from 1685 up till Gate. It's a very interesting load of black and white photographs taken by people like Roger Main, Ken Russell, um, of me growing up in Notting Hill Gate. And then afterwards there's work about all my different things like sardine can construction, different construction, seaside boxes, collages, with Centre Globe and various other artists. That I have copies of. It is on Amazon, but they don't pay me, so I don't know people there. They're not shown and sold out. My current website is mainly work I'm doing in collaboration with Carrie Reichard, and that's under the Rubber Not Taken brand of www.rubbernottaken.com. And now, with the demise of dealers and galleries, I've come more or less all, my, all the dealers that I've had have gone skin or fed up with it or not making any money or not wanting to show my work because it varies too much. So I've just gone on like everybody else these days on social media and I post something up every day on Instagram which I think is a good medium and current projects are pretty much based on social media and picking up work. I've got a little shop as well. So I'm not really that bothered about selling my work because I went this house as a hotel so I'll get money from from that. So I like the fact that I don't really have to sell it. Gives like. you a bit more freedom, yeah, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, you know, I don't want to be like a jobbing artist. And, you know, people do this. Oh, I just do really what I, what I feel like. Good. So yeah, it's, it's brilliant. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, well, it's good. Thank you. Easy to talk about yourself, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, didn't I tell you that was a good story? Didn't I? Yes. How about that? What a character, Bob Osborne. I love that conversation. Now, when I recorded this podcast with Bob and Carrie, who I'd done a, a couple of hours beforehand. The entrance date for the Cash's King submissions had passed a couple of days before I recorded this podcast. But they said, if I could put an artwork onto a banknote within the next two days and get the image off over to them, I could be included in the book. So my submission is what I like to call the runt of the litter. I would say it's definitely the most visually unpleasing <laughs> of all the banknotes submitted. But that was intentional. You know, being a conceptual artist, mine's all about the, the idea behind it. My submission was made in response to the conversation me and Bob had about his Cash and King project and the legality of defacing a banknote, which is what the whole show is about. Or, sorry, which the whole book is about. So in this podcast, Bob mentioned that most people aren't even aware that defacing a banknote is a criminal offence. And those that do know, most of them think it's just an urban myth anyway. So as a starting point, I looked up the actual legislation, the Currency and Banknote Act 1928, regarding defacing of British currency. So the actual legislation states, If any person prints or stamps, or by any like means impresses on any banknote any words, letters or figures, he shall, in respect of each offence, be liable on summary conviction to a penalty not exceeding, then in brackets, level one of the standard scale, which is basically just a, a ratio list for judges to go by. 
But reading that legislation again, I picked up on just a little phrase that was used in the centre of that legislation, which was, well, starting from the beginning, if any person prints, stamps, or by any like means impresses on any banknote any words, letters, or figures, he shall, in respect of each offence, be liable on summary conviction to a penalty not exceeding. Now, they said he shall, and I know in law that they use he to represent one, the person. And the pedantic person inside me, or rather the pedantic side of me, picked up on that. If the law were, or well, if the law, me, if the police were to act on Bob and Carrie's project and round up everyone who's defaced all these banknotes, going by this legislation, could the female artists who have submitted say that the law doesn't affect them because it states he shall be subject to a fine, not she or they. So I took the actual web page address and had a QR code made up. A QR code, if you're not aware, you will see it on a lot of products. It looks like a little crossword. And this crossword-looking code is just like a barcode, but in a different form. Many smartphones now come with a QR reader. If not, they're easily downloadable as an app. And just by scanning this code, it directs you straight to a website. So I've got this QR code and had it printed onto a £10 note. And by doing so, if we were all rounded up by the police for this huge offence that Carrie and Bob have got us to create, the women could well get away with it because the law doesn't affect them. The remaining men could say, we wasn't aware of the law, we thought it was just an urban myth. That would leave just me. I would have no excuse like that because I've actually printed the code that takes you to the website to tell you all about the law. And just because it affects only the men, I called it Section 12, a sexist legislation. And as I said from the offset, it's visually and aesthetically unpleasing, but quite intriguing, even if I do say so myself. And is most definitely the only interactive artwork in the Cash's King book which Bob and Carrie have placed on the very last page to show, in Bob's words, the dystopian direction in which our banknotes are going. So you can buy the Cash's King book from Bob's website, which is rebelnottaken.com, or from the Saatchi Gallery itself. It's £15 and it's hardback copy. All are signed by Bob and Carrie Reichart. And not only are the Saatchi Gallery stock in their book... They will also be showing the banknotes. I don't know how many, but there's definitely an exhibition on that starts on Friday, the 31st of August. I don't know if mine is featured in there, but that's by the by. Go down to the Saatchi Gallery. If you're about, if you've got a day out, going to visit galleries, get down to the Saatchi from Friday, the 31st of August. And if mine is featured, give it a little go with your QR reader on your smartphone and you'll see the legislation for yourself. To see more of Bob's work, again, you can go to www.rebelnottaken.com and also on Instagram, again, here's rebelnottaken. As far as this podcast is concerned, you can subscribe on iTunes or Mizzlegart. That way you get a, a little message as to when a new episode is coming out, which is every Monday. I'm on all social medias at Mizog Art, M-I-Z-O-G-A-R-T. 
And if you want to ask me any questions or email me for anything in particular, that is podcast at mizogart.com. I have a list here of other artists who are confirmed for the Mizog Art podcast. They're in alphabetical order, and it is Callum Innes, Laura Keeble, Paul Kindersley, Kate Knight, Abigail Lane, Jimmy Lee, MC Lammas, Kathy Lomax, Sarah Maple, Emma Maguire, Louise McNaught, Meg Mosley, who I mentioned earlier, and Kate Murdoch. So again, thank you for listening. If you're able, go over to rebelnottaken.com and buy Bob and Carrie's Cash's King book, £15 hardback. Thanks for listening. Ta-da. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.